Good morning, church. Good to see you again. Good to be back from vacation. And uh, before we jump in, I wanted to say um, last week, we were supposed to be back last weekend, and we weren't able to make it back uh, for a couple of reasons. One of them being uh, there was a church that kind of went into crisis, did go into crisis. And um, so I got pulled into that. Uh, I was able to go and help them and uh, spent 20 hours last weekend in counseling and mediation and trying to help a church not fall to pieces. Uh, and I just wanted to let you know, uh, I guess one, what your pastor does sometimes, uh, but two, really that I feel the grace to do that because of how much you press into Jesus, um, because of how supportive you are, because of how well you bear one another's burdens. So thank you for doing that. It makes ministry, for me, possible in other places. It makes ministry for all of us outside these walls uh, happen. So thank you for the way you press into Jesus, and thank you for the way you serve one another. Speaking of ministry, we have the ministry of the Word to attend to. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. For our guests, we're studying through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we are in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, today we are going to focus, as Seth said, on the topic that is addressed in the second half of the fifth petition on forgiving others. C.S. Lewis once said, we all think forgiveness is a lovely idea until we have something to forgive. Jesus knew this. He knew if there was one thing in this prayer that we would stumble over, one thing that would be sure to trip us up, it would be the obligation we have to forgive others. And so after the prayer, he returns to this topic again just to underline its significance. And we see that in verses 14 and 15 this morning as well. If you're taking notes, the title of my sermon is Forgiveness Given. Forgiveness Given. Our passage is Matthew 6, verse 12, and verses 14 and 15, but we'll look at them in context. I'll begin reading in verse 7. So this is the word of God. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Four, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us with this word and with this topic. God, we pray for the, the grace we need from you to hear your word, to comprehend it, to be transformed by it, and to do it. So we ask for your help as we study this. We ask for your spirit to fill us. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In his book, When Sinners Say I Do, Dave Harvey tells about a Christian couple named Jeremy and Cindy. Uh, they appear to have it all together. Uh, they are sharp. They are attractive. They are successful. But all this masked problems in their marriage, problems they didn't really address and problems they weren't bringing into the light with others and getting help for. And over time, Jeremy began to wander. First with his thoughts, then increasingly and more boldly with his actions until finally he gave himself fully to an adulterous relationship. As you can imagine, when Cindy found out, she was devastated. Her whole life fell apart. She was engulfed in pain. 
what she knew about herself, what she knew about Jeremy, what she knew about God was all brought into question and she found herself consumed with fear and sadness and bitter jealousy and intense anger. Now imagine Cindy is in your community group. She confides in, confides in you to what happened and, and tells you she doesn't want to leave Jeremy. She feels called to stay with him, to rebuild their marriage somehow, but she's wrestling with forgiveness. Can she forgive him for this? And if so, how? It's the how that's really the harder question. What would you say to her? How would you counsel her? Some of you are in Cindy-like situations. Others of you have been in Cindy-like situations. And all of us are regularly in situations that aren't anywhere as severe as Cindy's, and yet we struggle to forgive. In our passage today, we see Jesus calls us to forgive. Extending forgiveness, Jesus is teaching, is true and persuasive evidence that we ourselves have been forgiven by God. The bottom line, we saw this a few weeks ago when we studied the first part of this passage, is forgiven sinners forgive sin. Okay, you say, okay, like let me just buy that for a minute, Jace, okay. But how? How do you move from pain to pardon? How do you move from fury to forgiveness? Today I wanna to try and answer that how question. But first I wanna take some time to answer an even more foundational or, or base one. What exactly is forgiveness? There's a lot of confusion around the topic of forgiveness, so we want to define it and we wanna clarify what it's not. What is it and what is it not? So the first question we wanna answer this morning is what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? Well, in the original language, there's two words used in the New Testament for forgiveness. Uh, one we find in our passage this morning. So look again at verse 12. Here's the fifth petition, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the first word for forgiveness, and it literally means to send away or to release, to release. So what this means is when someone sins against you, when they offend you, there's something between you and them. Sin is an obstacle between us. Or to use the metaphor Jesus uses, to stick with that, it's a debt we draw on from each other. It's a debt we draw from the relationship. When someone sins against you, they're taking something from you and they are indebted to you for that. And so forgiveness then is sending away that debt. It's releasing that debt. It's canceling it. That's the first word. The second word used in the New Testament for forgiveness is one the Apostle Paul uses often in places like Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The word forgive here is actually the verb form of the word grace. Forgiveness is grace in action. This means forgiveness is freely given. This means forgiveness is not merited. Forgiveness is not earned. Forgiveness is not deserved. Forgiveness is freely given. 
So putting the two together, I would define forgiveness for our purposes today as the gracious act, or you could say the free act of releasing a moral debt someone owes you. It is the gracious act, forgiveness is the gracious act or the free act of releasing or canceling a moral debt someone owes you. That's what forgiveness is. Now, let's clarify then what forgiveness is not. And I've got a list of seven things forgiveness is not. First, forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. Releasing a moral debt someone owes you does not necessarily mean the removal of all earthly consequences. A dad may forgive his son for lying to him, but still ground his son for disobeying. A husband may confess to his wife that he's been looking at pornography, and she may genuinely forgive him, but that does not mean there are not consequences for what he's done. The man needs accountability. The man needs restrictions. If a law is broken, someone can be forgiven, but that does not mean we don't need to report them to the authorities. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. I found that people often withhold forgiveness. I found that spouses often withhold forgiveness because they're afraid it means there can't be consequences for the other person. But that's not necessarily true. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. Second, forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetting. Forgiveness is not the same thing as forgiving. Forgetting. Forgiveness is frequently equated with forgiving, but they're not the same thing. And here's where I think the confusion comes from in Christian circles. God says in Scripture, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's Jeremiah 31, verse 34. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Here we learn that when God forgives us, He chooses not to remember our sins. But does this mean that God does not know what we did anymore? That he has actually forgotten it? That he has flushed it down some toilet and it is gone from his memory anymore? No, God is omniscient, God is all-knowing. He still remembers our sins and in fact, he still reminds us of our sins. Walking with him, he'll remember. Do you remember when I led you through that trial? Do you remember when you experienced forgiveness over this sin? In fact, we see him doing this with Israel all the time in the Old Testament. He's reminding them of where they sinned and what he brought them to. So what does it mean then that God forgives us and remembers our sin no more? Well, it means he chooses not to recall our sins to mind for the purpose of condemning us. It means he will not call them to mind in any way that is destructive for us. And likewise, in our relationship with others, forgiving is not the same thing as never calling to mind what has been done to us. It's not forgetting it in the sense of ignoring it. It's not trying to blank it out. It's not pretending like it never happened. And it doesn't mean, strictly speaking, that we never bring it up to the other person. What it does mean when you forgive someone truly from your heart, if you're choosing, it means you're choosing not to recall what they did for the purpose of condemning them. It means you are choosing not to drag it back up in some kind of destructive or harmful way. Do you know why bitterness has such a sharp memory? Do you know why bitterness has a sharp memory? Because bitterness has good study habits. Review, 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 review what was done to me. What happens is things go kind of south with a friend and you're not sure what happened, so you finally go and broach the subject with them. You say, hey, it's been kind of a little weird with us lately. Have, have I done something? Is something wrong? Is something off? And, and then all of a sudden, what do you find? Like this torrent of like, well, three weeks ago you said this and then you did this and then you never called me and checked about this. And, and it's... <laughs> Reviewing and reviewing sins committed against you is bitterness. 
and unforgiveness. But let's say one day I blow up at Jenny. Let's say one day I'm angry and I shout and I say all kinds of rude things to her, and yet she graciously forgives me. But then, the next day, being the schmuck that I am, I do it all over again. I yell, I get angry, I say rude things to her again. Now being the gracious woman that she is, she'll forgive me again. But just because she forgave me yesterday and because she forgave me today does not mean she is not allowed to point out to me the emergence of a concerning pattern. It does not mean that in a gracious and loving way she can't bring out my upburst from yesterday and my outburst today to help me try and figure out why I'm getting so angry. She's not bringing it up to hurt me, but to help me. Forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetting. Number three, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Sometimes people withhold forgiveness because they think that means they're supposed to be automatically reconciled which includes renewed trust, renewed relationship, uh, renewed affection or positive emotions. But forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Instead, forgiveness lays the groundwork on which reconciliation can be built. Forgiveness is an event that begins a process of reconciliation. Let me, under, or let me explain something here. This is a little technical, follow for the next two to three sentences, okay? And they're kind of complicated sentences. Forgiveness, forgiveness declares guilt. Forgiveness says you did something that wronged me and I release you from that. Receiving forgiveness says I agree I did something wrong against you and I receive your forgiveness your release from that debt. Now, did you see in that the point of agreement? Giving and receiving forgiveness is the place in a relationship that's broken where truth, you sinned against me, I agree I sinned, and grace, I forgive you, I receive your forgiveness. Truth and grace meet. And that is where you can begin reconciliation. That's where you can begin to rebuild trust. That is where you can begin to rebuild a relationship and even affection. Forgiveness lays the groundwork that reconciliation can be built upon. Number four, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Often we withhold forgiveness because we don't feel forgiving. But forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. It's not an emotion, it's an act of the will. Now hear me, feelings are good things. They are God-given things. They are part of being made in the image of God. The world would be all black and white if there wasn't emotions, but feelings are a gauge, not a guide. Feelings are a gauge, not a guide. Emotions are designed by God to give us report, not give us directions. They give us a reading on what we love or what we trust or what we are afraid of. Emotions are a gauge, but they are not a guide. We don't walk by emotions. We walk by faith, not by sight. And forgiveness isn't a matter of emotion as much as it is a matter of will, a matter of obedience. Forgive as you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. This does not mean that forgiveness isn't hard. It's incredibly hard. And what feels hard is a real feeling. Your emotions are telling you about where you feel hurt, about where you are upset, about where you've been betrayed. And these are things that you need to lament over. But your emotions may also be reading 
hey, there's bitterness here. Hey, there's hopelessness here. Hey, there's fear here. And these are things that you need to go to God with in a different way. You need to repent. You need to be strengthened in the Lord. All your feelings are real and they are revealing real things about you, but forgiveness is not contingent upon us feeling like forgiving. And really think about how the gospel works. Yes, Jesus wanted to come and save us, but did he want to go to the cross? Well, no, not exactly. Remember Gethsemane. There Jesus pleaded with God to remove the cup of his wrath. He pleaded till he sweat blood, yet still Jesus obeyed. Still he said, not my will, but yours be done. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, but this does not mean that he thought the cross was enjoyable. He did not. It means he believed there was good on the other side of the cross. There was good, enough good, to endure the cross to get to. And that's what we believe when we forgive. Not that God will necessarily reconcile this specific relationship, he might not. But we are believing forgiveness is better than bitterness. We are believing that hope in God is better than hopelessness. We are believing obedience is better than disobedience. We are believing that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We are believing that God overcomes evil with good. We are believing forgiving others pleases our Father in heaven who so graciously forgives us. Forgiveness is a matter of obedience. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and forgiveness is usually given before it is felt. Positive emotions generally do come afterward, but think about how scripture urges us to pursue forgiveness. Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There is an urgency to pursuing forgiveness. In the next verse, Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. There's an urgency to forgiveness that might run contrary to how you feel. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a choice to obey. It's a choice to trust God. It's a choice to act in faith. Fifth, forgiveness is not one and done. Forgiveness is not one and done. When Peter asked Jesus how many times he forgives someone, this is in Matthew 18, he suggests seven times. But Jesus rebukes Peter and says, no, forgiveness has no limits. If we have been forgiven at the infinite cost of Jesus' life, then the call on us to forgive applies to countless offenses. Even the same offense repeated. Forgiveness is not one and done. Sixth, forgiveness is not conditional. Forgiveness is not conditional. One common reason people don't forgive someone is because the one that sinned against them hasn't repented. They're waiting. But forgiveness is not merited by repentance. Forgiveness is freely given. Forgiveness, as we already saw, is literally grace in action. It's freely given, it's unmerited. Jesus teaches us, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. That's Mark 11, verse 25. If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. It's unconditional. Repentance isn't a necessary condition to forgive someone, but it is a necessary condition for forgiveness to be received. Forgiveness is grace. It's a gift you give. But repentance, on the other person's part, is their receiving that gift. It's their accepting the present, unwrapping it, and being grateful for it. And this is, again, exactly how the gospel works. The Apostle Paul writes, But God proves his love for you, and that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Romans 5, 8. So while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies with God, the price was paid, the debt was canceled, the gift was given, but that's not enough. We still needed to receive 
receive it, we do so by faith and repentance. This is how the gospel works, and now we are to go and forgive as we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 4.32. We are to forgive as the Lord forgave us, Colossians 3.13. We are to give the gift of repentance, we are to cancel the debt, we are to give them grace just as God did with us. Forgiveness is not conditional, it's freely given. Forgiveness is grace in action. Seventh, and finally, forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is not easy. We covered this a couple weeks ago, but it, it merits going over again and in more depth. Forgiveness, forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is costly. When you're not making someone pay a debt they owe you, when you're releasing them from that debt, what's that mean? It means you're covering the debt. It means you're absorbing the cost. Forgiveness is costly. Tim Keller has written, and listen, this is, this is really helpful for us uh, personally, but also as we help each other. He says, at first, so I don't have this on, on quotes for you either, but I'll send it out this week in an email. At first, forgiveness always feels far worse than bitterness. To refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. And let's just pause here in this quote for a minute. Note that. We have to be careful not to be naive when we're helping each other. It's easy to tell people, well, you need to forgive them. You need to forgive them, and then you'll be liberated. You need to forgive them, and then you'll be healed. You need to forgive them, and you'll know the grace of God. And, and ultimately, that's true. Ultimately, it does lead to those things. But initially, forgiveness always feels worse than bitterness. And this is why people choose bitterness. And this is why we need to help them and be patient with them and walk with them. Continuing the quote, he says, forgiveness is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forgo the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt. You are taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. This hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly suffering. Imagine, for example, that I'm over at your house. I'm over at your house. You've had me over for a meal. Thank you for doing that. You served me my favorite meal. Thank you for doing that. But in the course of the meal, you said something that offended me. You said something that offended me, and I got angry at you. I have an anger issue, apparently, today. I was angry at Jenny earlier in my illustration. Now I'm angry at you. I'm angry at you, and I storm out of your house, I jump in my car, slam the door, kick it in reverse, out real fast, but I slam into your car when I do it. Let's say I did $5,000 worth of damage, and I see the damage, and I think, I'm not even going to mess with it because they're jerks, and I drive away. You come out. And here you are, you've listened to this sermon now. And you think, oh man, I gotta forgive him. God wants me to forgive him. And you wrestle and you wrestle and you feel like God's telling you, you don't have to do this, there can be consequences, but you feel like God's telling, putting on your heart, it'd be good for you to not only forgive him in your heart, but in a practical sense too. To not make me pay the damages on your car. Again, you don't have to do that because there can be consequences, right? You can forgive me in your heart and still, but that's what you decide God's calling you. So you call me up, you confront me about what I did wrong, you tell me I'm forgiven, and then you say, and I, I don't want to make you have to pay for any of the costs. I'll, I'll cover them. Thank you. That's very nice of you. I really appreciate that. That's a great way to walk these things out if I'm involved. Then you go to bed that night. <laughs> then you go to bed that night. And when you wake up in the next morning, you go out to survey the car, you go out to look at the images again and start calling to get estimates and get it towed away and all this stuff. You go out and you look at the car and, oh, behold, wonder of wonder, it's completely fixed. Is that how forgiveness works? 
No. Your car still broke. The debt doesn't just disappear. Forgiving doesn't just make the damages go away. No, forgiveness means you have to absorb it in yourself, the cost incurred to fix the car. And this gets at the very nature of forgiveness. The debt doesn't just disappear. You have to absorb it, and this is painful. So when God calls us to forgive, he is calling us to suffer. When God calls us to forgive, he is calling us to die. To die to the part of us that feels entitled to better treatment than we've received. To die to that part of us that wants to retaliate. To die to that part of us that wants the offender to pay what they owe. We die when we forgive. And this is why forgiveness is so hard. So how do you forgive? Do you want to know how? Three of you do, excellent. Oh, hi, there's the rest of you. You're busy taking notes, thank you, that's very. How do you do it? How do we forgive? That's the second question, how do we forgive? Jesus calls us to forgive people who sin against us, but how do we do it? Where do we find the strength to forgive? Where do we find the ability to forgive? Where do we find the reserves to forgive? If it entails suffering, if it entails death, where do we find the power to forgive? And the answer is, the only Christian answer, the only real answer, is at the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't go first to the grace we need to give. We go first to the place where there's grace for us to receive. We Christians don't think enough about the gospel, about the cross of Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle once observed, a spiteful, quarrelsome Christian is a scandal. It is doubtful that such a one has sat at the foot of the cross. Don't misunderstand Ryle. He's not really questioning their salvation. He's not saying they've never been to the cross. He's saying when he sees a bitter or a quarrelsome Christian, he's doubtful they're sitting at the foot of the cross. You see, the cross is not just a place we go to get saved. Once we are saved, it's a place we frequent. It's a place we visit to meditate on the reality of our salvation that we now live in. It's a place we go to learn from. It's a place we go to experience the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the word of the cross, the message of the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In John Bunyan's classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, travels to the cross and sees Jesus dying there. And the burden of his sins rolls away. So he's saved, he's forgiven. His sin burden's been removed. But he doesn't move on. Bunyan has him stay there. Bunyan writes, then Christian stood a while to look and wonder, for he was very surprised that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden in such a way. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even until the spring in his head sent their waters flowing down his cheeks. The more Christian looked at the cross, the more he wept over the grace of what he was seeing there. And this is exactly where we get the power to forgive others. At the cross, we see that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet his enemies. And so the cross is both the model and the motive for our forgiveness. We need to think deeply about and meditate on the cross if we want power to forgive. When people are struggling with forgiveness, uh, they're sometimes, they're usually surprised that books I recommend aren't necessarily about marriage, but are about the cross. 
I encourage them to go read John Piper's The Passion of Christ, or C.J. Mahaney's Christ Our Mediator, or Milton Vincent's um, Gospel Primer. I do this because I'm convinced the cross is the only place where we find the perspective and the power we need to forgive others. So let me give you a foretaste of, of some of what I think we find when we meditate on the cross that can help us forgive other people. I'll give you four brief thoughts from the cross, from the foot of the cross, that can help us forgive other people. The first is this, Christ has suffered. This is what we see at the cross. Christ has suffered, as I am suffering right now, only infinitely more so, which means I am never alone in my pain. I am never alone in my pain. When we are in pain, before we go to the cross and see Jesus suffering for our sin, we can come to the cross and see him suffering for our sufferings. Jesus understands our pain. We learn this in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, before the prophet articulates anything about Jesus dying for our iniquities, he observes Jesus bearing a weight. Verses 53, or verse three and four, the prophet says, Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. Then he says, surely our griefs he himself has bore, and our sorrows he's carried. Yes, Jesus bore our iniquities, but before that, Isaiah points out how acquainted Jesus is, how well he knows our sufferings, for he bears them in himself. When Jesus was on the cross, all your pains, all your sorrows were placed on Jesus, and he felt them all. And remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, remember what they offered him? What'd they offer him? Wine. Wine mixed with vinegar. They offered him wine, though. The wine part of it was to help dull the senses. It was to medicate the pain. It was to numb him. And what did Jesus do with it? What did Jesus do? He refused it. Why? He wanted his senses sharp. He wanted to know every bit of your pain. He refused it not. He wanted to know your loneliness. He wanted to know your betrayal. He wanted to know your abandonment. He wanted to know your hurt. And he did know them. Only he's innocent. And so he knew it infinitely more so. John Stott once wrote, it's wonderful that we may share in Christ's suffering. It is more wonderful still that he shares in ours. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, literally suffer with our weaknesses. On the cross, we see Jesus has suffered our pains. A second thought from the cross is this. On the cross, Jesus isn't only dying, but he's also entrusting. 1 Peter 2, 23, while suffering, Jesus uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, when he died, Luke 23, 46 tells us Christ, or Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The point is, the cross teaches us God can be trusted completely because yes, Jesus died. Yes, he was buried into the grave, but then God raised him from the, de the dead, elevated Jesus to his own right hand, far above all rulers and authorities and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And from that position of lordship and glory, and authority and life, Jesus can look you in the face and say, my father can be trusted. Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He entrusted himself to the father. A third thought about the cross or from the cross, at the cross we see how we have committed greater sins against God than has ever been committed against us. At the cross we see 
We have committed greater sins against God than we have ever committed against us. We learn the magnitude of our sins at the cross. They are infinitely evil. Consider this, when we look at Jesus dying on the cross, we not only see a man dying, we see a man being killed. And who is the murderer? It is us. It is us. Isaiah 53, again, verse five, he gets to iniquities. He says Jesus was pierced through for, or literally from, our transgressions. He was crushed for, or literally from, the weight of our iniquities. This makes us violators of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. We are all murderers here. And not only have we killed someone in the image of God, but we have killed the very image of God. We've killed God's own son. And this shows us something of the nature of sin. That's not just the rejection of God, it is the violent rejection of him. Sin is the murder of God. At the cross we learn the magnitude of our sin, that we have committed a sin greater against a holy God than has ever been committed against us. And this is exactly what Jesus seeks to illustrate for us in Matthew 18 with the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, We're told there that the the servant owed his master 10,000 talents. So in today's money, that's like $6 billion. And the master released him from that debt, forgave him. But then the servant, that same servant was owed 100 denarii by a fellow servant, which is about $12,000. So not an insignificant sum, but not even comparable to $6 billion but that servant would not forgive his fellow servant. So when the master heard about this, Jesus says that he dragged the unforgiving servant before him and said, I forgave you all that debt. Which is to say, you have forgotten how much I forgave you the size of the debt you owed me. If you could remember that, you would be able to forgive your fellow servant. Let me try to visualize this for you. If you tried to graph these two numbers, like a bar graph, you know, have you seen those commercials where people have like the signals for their cell phones over their heads to show like how weak or strong their signal are and then, you know, this carrier is the greater one because there's always like five and it's amazing and whatever, and you get 5G. And so, you know, like, so picture that, those bars, right? So if you were to make the $6 billion debt a bar over your head that was a mile high Now that sounds ridiculous, why am I making it a mile high? You'll see, okay? Imagine the debt, $6 billion, a mile high over your head and we could all see that. Do you know how big the bar would be for your $12,000 debt? 0.12 of an inch. 0.12 of an inch. That means if you're not sitting in the front row here, I wouldn't even be able to see it. Now keep that in mind and and think about this then, right? In this parable, the $6 billion debt, that one million high debt, or one mile high debt, that represents what? What's that represent? Don't be shy. That represents what? Our sins, our debt to God, right? Which are forgiven. The $12,000 debt, what does that represent? Our sins against each other, Uh uh-uh, nope. It represents the sins we don't want to forgive against each other. In other words, the really big ones, the really hard ones. and they are 0.12 inch. If you see them from the foot of the cross, if you can see them in light of the magnitude 
of your own sin against the holy God. At the cross, we see the magnitude of our sin, but at the cross, we also see the super magnitude of God's grace. (laughs) That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the fourth thing we see there is glory to God. He has already graciously paid for our forgiveness at the cross. He's already purchased it. He's already canceled our debt. And living in that mile high grace, enjoying that mile high grace, treasuring that mile high grace, awash in that mile high grace, we find the grace to forgive others their .12 inch sins against us, severe though they be. I'm not trying to to make light of any sins. You get that, right? Like, I'm not trying to make light of any sins by calling them .12 inch. I'm trying to make us come to terms with the fact that compared against the sins of a holy God, that's where we see what sin really is. Here we learn at the foot of the cross where we get this grace upon grace from God where all our sins are forgiven. Here we learn something about the essence, about the nature of forgiving others. More than just releasing a moral debt, when we forgive someone, this is like in a real flat, black and white, 2D kind of way, forgiveness is releasing a moral debt someone owes you. Make it 3D, make it alive. What is the substance of it? This is the substance of it. Passing on to them the grace we have received. Here's the substance of it. Gospelizing them. Evangelizing a sinner. Giving them the gospel by living the gospel out to them. Embodying the gospel, incarnating the gospel, saying I've received this much grace, how can I not also gift it to you? That is forgiveness. And it's only at the foot of the cross that we find the grace we need to pass that on to someone else. Let me conclude with this. I I wanna return to where we began. Let me return to Cindy and her story about her husband who committed adultery on her. Let me finish telling you her testimony. Eventually, Cindy got to a place of grace and forgiveness, and this is how she explained it happening. I knew what God's word said about forgiveness, that I could and should freely forgive in light of Christ's great mercy for me on the cross. Yet, I was not able to see my own sin as clearly, and that became a stumbling block for me to extend forgiveness to Jeremy. It was a process that took time, and it seemed unbearably slow. At times, I did not think I would make it. Many times, I wanted to give up and leave the marriage. By God's grace alone, I did not take that path. I would slip into bitterness often, repent and start over numerous times. But the more I heard the gospel preached, the more I was able to understand it and apply it to myself. Over time, I began to see my own sinfulness and God's grace and mercy for my sins. It was very hard to look at my own contribution to the breakdown of my marriage. I wanted to just focus on his part and leave the blame there. But God opened my eyes and helped me to see that even as a victim of my husband's sin, I could not claim innocence in my marriage. And listen to this, and certainly not before a holy God. The gospel gave me power to forgive my husband. Christ had died for both our sins. Dying in our place and drinking the full cup of God's wrath we deserved for our sins. Through the revelation of this truth, I was humbled and disarmed. And here, this one's, she says, we, meaning her and her husband, were more alike than different. And from this standing place, forgiveness flowed. May God help all of us to get to the same place, to be at the same place, to sit at the same place that Cindy sat.
at the foot of the cross where forgiveness flows to us and where forgiveness can flow through us to those who will sin against us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, your word is a lamp to our feet and I believe today your word is shining on some dark places in our soul, some dark places in our life. And part of us is recoiling from it, pulling away in fear, in unbelief, in hurt, in anger. But you are clearly calling us, you clearly call us to forgive. And what you call us to give, you also supply. There's grace here. There's grace here. So God, I pray for those who are feeling the weight of this word, who are feeling the call of Christ in it to forgive someone. God, I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would help them to see Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help them to start releasing their their death grip on that debt that is owed them. Um, Maybe today is even just the beginning of that process. Maybe it's it's just starting to barely loosen that grip a little bit. (laughs) Help us to take steps of faith today, Lord. And for the rest of us who maybe are not struggling with a particular sin that needs to be forgiven in this moment, we're not struggling with unforgiveness in this moment, uh, we're gonna go home today and we're gonna struggle with it later. <laughs> or maybe tomorrow if we're, if we're really in, uh, you know, if we're really blessed. But we're all gonna have it in front of us today, Lord, or this week, Lord, and so help us to stay near the cross. Help us to stay near in fellowship to your sufferings that forgiveness can flow to us and from us through us. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let me invite you to please stand now. I said that in first service too. Let me invite you to please stand. Let me invite you? Like, can I, can, let me invite, so I have to, does that even make sense? I don't know, that, but y'all followed. You're very gracious people, thank you. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes.